0: I was convinced by friends of mine to watch Unorthodox on Netflix. Not something, I'll be honest, which I would have normally watched, but I was completely intrigued uh, by every single episode. I ended up binge watching it till two o'clock in the morning. And I have to say, it's an intriguing story. And when I say a story, it's your life, Deborah. I mean, when you watched it on Netflix, do you believe it portrayed your life? I know you were involved in the making of it. But did, did I mean, when you looked at it, was that your life? Is that really what you saw in your life?
1: Yeah, I think it comes very close to the spirit of the story in the sense that all the emotions feel very familiar. But at the same time, you know, working together with these women on the series, we also were very conscious of the fact that we wanted the series to represent not just my story, but the stories of, you know, thousands of other people who've left in the past decade because leaving the Hasidic community has become something of a trend recently. Mm-hmm. And we, we wanted other people to be able to find themselves in Esty's journey as well.
0: I mean, when we saw Esty, of course, the the caricature that she played, I mean, it was amazing. I mean, she played this girl who you felt was very vulnerable. You felt very sorry for her initially at the start, of course, until she got her freedom. And that moment when she walked out in the water and took off the wig mm-hmm. in Berlin, it's a, it's a wonderful moment if people remember that, which I think that was being in the second episode, the start of the second episode. But can you yeah. describe to people what it was like to be part of this sect. Some people would describe it as a cult. It was a religion, of course. It was, uh, you know, a very strict Jewish religion. But where did it originate from? I mean, this particular Satmar, Hasidic, uh, unorthodox Jewish religion, where did it come from or where did it originate?
1: Well, the Satmar sect defines itself as a Hasidic sect, which is quite interesting because the Hasidic movement, which began in 18th century Eastern Europe, Originally understood itself as a quite revolutionary, um, and mystical movement that offered its members freedom and the ability, the ability to navigate an individual relationship with God, which, at, which at the time, you know, in orthodoxy was just simply not an option. So at the time it was very rebellious actually, and it became more, more conservative over the centuries, especially as other movements took hold that were in direct competition with it, you know, just Think of the Enlightenment, for example, or Zionism, where sort of Jewish people from the shtetl in Eastern Europe suddenly had all these options open to them about alternative lifestyles. And no. already at the turn of the 20th century, um, you know, the rabbi in this small town of Satu on the border of Hungary and Romania was preaching against all of these other competing movements, and he was warning his congregants that God would send a punishment to remind the Jewish people that they were still in exile and still had to abide by the rules by the pact that they swore to god when they were first sent into exile which is you know to accept the condition of exile to submit to the authorities uh, and to you know wait passively for the messiah so when the holocaust happened this rabbi who survived by getting on a zionist transport to safety he went straight to new york and he started gathering all of these traumatized survivors around him and said I warned that this would happen. I know why the Holocaust happened. It was a punishment, a last chance for us to finally return to our traditions. And, and bring them So essentially them so them essentially down what down. he
0: was saying was that the Jewish people in this sect they deserved it. And they were subordinate and they deserved what they got because they were breaking the rules of God and this is what this was their punishment to put them back in line. Because you described at one stage because you had a great relationship with your grandmother, that she talked about Hitler and the Nazis and how they weren't human beings. They were act like Hitler was seemingly a chicken and if you if you took off yeah. his shoes he had chickens' feet and they weren't actually yeah. human beings. And is that really what you Thought growing up that the Germans weren't real people?
1: Well, uh, certainly when I was growing up, um, you know, if you said the word Nazi to me, that would be like saying monster or bogeyman to any other child. I mean, to me, Nazis were monsters that I had never really seen, but I could always picture. And, you know, I had nightmares about them. And certainly I understood that the Nazis were Germans and that somewhere out there there was still Germany and there were still people that hated us. So, so to speak, that's how I was raised. Um, And certainly my grandparents were, you know, deeply traumatized people who probably thought this was the only real way to deal with the trauma, the only way that felt Right to them. Um, okay. Who am I to judge
0: Holocaust survivors? Okay. And, and and the other thing as well is, I mean, the rules of being part of this particular sect. I mean, for women, it seems the only thing was that you were there to produce babies, because the more babies that you could have, the you would increase the population, obviously, of the sect, and that's exactly what they wanted you for. What would happen? Or I don't know if ever there was a case where there was a woman who couldn't conceive. I mean, what, were they looked down upon if they couldn't conceive?
1: I mean, women in my community who couldn't conceive were objects of tremendous pity. They were, I mean, considered deeply miserable because they had no role. They had no value in the community. They weren't valued by their husbands, by their families, by their neighbors. Um, Yeah, so, I mean, it was really, truly a terrible fate. And I had one aunt uh, who was infertile, and um, her life consisted of, you know, IVF and running from rabbi to rabbi to, you know, to get blessings and to pray and she, she had to wait 17 years before she finally gave birth to a child, and she suffered terribly in those 17 years, and everyone just felt so sorry for her, and there, she was considered to have no meaning or purpose in her life, and when she finally had that child, it was as, as if she was finally legitimate in the eyes of the community. Mm. And it was very, it was, you know, it was very cathartic for
0: her. And I mean, the idea, I mean, obviously in the Western world, we don't understand the idea of arranged marriage as well, of course, depending on what religion we are. I mean, this marriage, of course, we saw it on the, on the TV show. This marriage is arranged now. In fairness, your husband didn't seem to be such a bad guy and he seemed to be slightly rebellious himself somewhat. And that scene where the two of you came together and your mother said you don't speak until he speaks first. And that was the first time Mm. you'd ever met him. What was that moment like when you're being put in front of a complete stranger who, for all the world, didn't seem like such a bad guy there at the time but you're being pulled from this complete stranger and this is going to be your husband for the rest of your life and you're going to have children for him that must be a terrible moment for a woman
1: Um, you know for me it was it was rather hopeful you know because I always knew that I would get married and that the marriage would be arranged and I certainly hoped that marriage would give me freedom and independence and maybe even like some authority because all the women I knew who had authority were married um. So actually, I was very excited. And especially when I first walked into the room and I realized, well, he's certainly not bad to look at. So, you know, that's one thing off the list. Um, but yes, in those moments waiting for him to start the conversation, because the onus was on him. Of course, there is this feeling of, you know, what if we simply don't understand each other? What if he doesn't understand me? What if he can't see me for the person I am? And I, I felt I felt this need to warn him in a way to tell him that he needs to know that he's sitting across from a young woman who's different from other young women, and he needs to know what he's getting himself into. Because well, any, they, but they betrayed him in around,
0: the TV show as well of, as being slightly yeah. rebellious himself, somewhat.
1: In his own way, he he was, very much so. I mean, you know, when I met him, he was older than most young men who are on the marriage market. He had a, he had a job already, which was considered quite rebellious for a young man his age. Um, so certainly he had his own... Uh, you know, had he had his own uh, uh, rule-breaking mechanisms in place there, which made me think we could be kindred spirits. I mean, I certainly went toward that wedding night with with hope that we would really kind of uh, grow to love each other and to be close and to be kind of a team. You know.
0: Mm-hmm and at what point then i mean when you were in new york at this stage of course and and by the way I, I could talk about the fact that at some stage i know it wasn't mentioned in the tv show but you did you had gone to great britain at some at one point earlier in your life and yes. when you were over there i suppose you got a kind of view of the western world um as such oh, because, no. because you were protected no, from no. it somewhat but but i suppose you you saw um, <laughs> uh, scantily <laughs> I clad women Stanford
1: hill. <laughs> i was just in stamford hill i mean honestly yeah there was there was this moment once when i was waiting for the bus at Upper Clapton Road or something, and I remember seeing a, you know, like an advertisement at the bus stop, Um, but I was really only in Stamford Hill, and I only saw other Hasidic Jewish people who lived in London. Oh, okay. I mean, uh, I can't really say I saw much of the <laughs> women, but I saw an advertisement.
0: And when you saw that, when you saw that advertisement of this scantily clad woman and the, I, I suppose that freedom and the liberation of women somewhat maybe was going through your head. Is that was that something that kind of sparked with you that you kind of said at some point I would like to not like to be her in particular, but I would like that freedom.
1: You know, at that time, I wasn't able to articulate it so clearly to myself because I think I was still struggling to understand what freedom was. And, you know, I had so many prejudices about the outside world that had been inculcated within me Um, that, you know, I I think I approached that with a mixture of curiosity and fear. I mean, you know, freedom can also be very frightening. And it's really hard to to navigate your way toward it and to understand what it really is, because so much of what is sold to us as freedom, even outside, is an illusion, Mm-hmm. You know, so you know, I'm not sure that that woman uh, represented freedom to me, but she certainly represented, you know, you know, another another archetype. And um, in in a sense, you know, my journey has been about finding my own personal freedom outside of these archetypes to find kind of my way in between.
0: Well, let, but let's talk about your journey and the, the quite dramatic part of the of the TV show is obviously the opening scenes, where uh, of course you had befriended your piano teacher who helped you to get out of New York, and that dramatic scene where you got on the bus and you know they were looking for you, and obviously they were going to come after try and get you back again. What was that moment like for you? It must have been terrifying because you were still quite young. So it must have been terrifying for you to leave this safe haven of not only the sect, but New York, a place where you really only spent most of your life uh, to go to a country that you'd never been in before.
1: OK, so now, now I'll break the news to you that, you know, much of the series that takes place uh, after she leaves is uh, fiction. OK, because we wanted we wanted that part of Essie's life to differ from my own life because we wanted I think I wanted and, you know, these other women wanted me to have a little bit of privacy in my current life. So everything that you see happening prior to her leaving is based exactly in my life experiences and on the book. But what happens after has been kind of... um based off of a variety of different experiences that other people have had in the same situation. Well, I would imagine it's so, dramatized
0: as well. Yes. I mean, look, it's got yes. to make good TV right. too. <laughs> I mean, that, yeah. that, that's the end of it as well. But so when, when you managed to get to you. Berlin, I mean, what was that feeling like when you got to Berlin um, and you moved away from the community and all of a sudden you had this liberation that you could do whatever you want and you could see people who were different. I suppose that, you know, the community that you were in wouldn't have accepted homosexuality or lesbianism or trans Gender or different things, you, you know, you can watch TV and Western television, all that kind of stuff. What was it like to, for that change in your life?
1: Well, I moved to Berlin five years after I left the community. So I lived in New York prior to that. Mm-hmm. And I think I was exposed to a lot of that in New York. But what Berlin represented for me when I finally did arrive here was a sense of openness towards people who don't necessarily fit into any specific segment of society berlin is is a city full of misfits it's a city that is you know known for having a slightly anarchist character and that applies to all aspects of life and so what happened was i arrived nobody knew anything about where i came from they didn't know enough to judge me and i was just simply accepted from day one and i met my first friend in a coffee shop on the first day and within a week, I had had a group of friends uh, from the same coffee shop and we were inseparable and we're still close. And in that sense, what you see happening to Esty as she arrives in Berlin, which some people almost think is unrealistic. How does someone make friends that quickly is exactly what happened to me in Berlin? And it's something that, you know, is not possible in cities like New York, Paris, or London, where social structures are more mm-hmm. conventional and more difficult to break into.
0: And, and are you purposely with, or I mean, would your friends or the, the, the people that you kind of hang out with now, are they a very diverse bunch of people because you're trying to overcompensate maybe for the life that you didn't have in your youth?
1: I would say that my group of friends today is very diverse, yes. Um, people from all over the world, from all kinds of backgrounds. And what they tend to have in common is they've all broken away from something. Mm. But that is something that is also true about this city. This city tends to attract people who need to run away, who need to leave something behind them.
0: And, I mean, for people who watch the TV show, obviously, as you mentioned already, a, a lot of the, the the end part that we saw there, I mean, obviously, the initial story uh, was your life, but I mean, a lot of the end of it was fiction. I mean, I, I mean, which disappoints me that you didn't actually walk out of a lake and take your wake up and light down, <laughs> <laughs> because that was a wonderful scene in because that's the one scene I think everybody remembers in it as well. For people who watch mm-hmm. that, I mean, when we think of these thousands and thousands of people all around the world in different sects and very strict sects, I mean, you've got the Baptist Church in America as well, which would be very similar type of sect. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, what do you say to people who may be listening today? I mean, we do have some of them here. There's, there's communities over here as well in Ireland that would be very religious and very like that where people are yeah. not allowed to watch TV, can't use mobile phones, mm-hmm. arrange marriages. What do you say to that people? Would you tell them to get out? Or would you say, you know, only get out if you want to? I mean, are they being brainwashed? They are being.
1: <laughs> I, you know, my policy is because I know that leaving is so difficult and that most, the majority of people fail at the, at the uh, venture, Um, You know, actually what I say to most people is if you can find a way to be happy in your own world, um, it will be easier than leaving. You know, I think that, you know, people should only leave if they're desperate and that they feel they have nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise I find that they just remain torn for the rest of their lives, you know, missing what they've lost and not quite feeling at home in the new world. Whereas if you really have nothing to lose, if you leave, if you're leaving nothing behind, then you have some kind of chance because everything you achieve will still be better than what you had before. And I really think it needs to come to that point.
0: Uh, One final question, by the way, and I've Googled this, but I didn't know how to Google it. Um, And in the uh, TV show, everybody who walked through the door, the front room of a house, there was a stick on the wall and everybody touched this stick. What is the stick?
1: Um, it's a mezuzah. It's something that um, Jewish people have on all of their doors, and it it, it uh, contains a small prayer scroll inside. Okay. And it's like a blessing for the home, and um, this is a, a sort of refers back to the time uh, in Egypt when uh, Jewish people painted their homes to protect themselves from the tenth plague.
0: Mm. All oh, right, Because oh, I, I, I mean, watched everybody do that. And I was trying to Google it. And I was Googling stick on wall in Jewish households. And I was, I, I <laughs> wasn't Google getting a really, good, I wasn't getting a really good answer. And I was dying to know what this actual <laughs> stick was. I mean, the Jewish community in Ireland are quite small, actually. There's only, would you believe yes. in a population of five million mm-hmm. people? We've only got 1200 Jewish people living in this country. Um, so it's a very small community. It was much bigger many years ago, but seems to have declined mm-hmm. over the years. But look, it's been wonderful talking to you. And the, the Netflix Thank show you. is amazing. And I'm sure you're delighted with the exposure that it's got as well because it was up the top there in Netflix in the, uh, in the number, one, number one position for quite some while and I would recommend to everybody to watch it because although you say much of it is fiction a lot of it is about your life and actually it is about the lives of many young women like you in those different types right. of communities around the world so I think it's really important people get to see it